Kiki Kiki Ma 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 Ma. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode eight of the Strange and Deadly Show. We're back with you once again. Time seems to fly by so bloody quickly nowadays. It seems like we only finished recording a show yesterday, and we're already back doing it. Uh, hello there. I'm Christopher Clayton. You may know me as the Gore Boy, but I'd prefer if you called me Chris because the Gore Boy's a stupid name, isn't it? I'm joined, as always, by my friend, my comrade. My brother in war. It's Mr. Tom Elliott. Hello, Tom. Hello, Chris. Hello, everyone. Tom, we're doing something this week that we never really thought we would do, which is covering one of the bigger horror franchises. Not the whole thing, but the the first two films in it. We're going to be talking about Friday the 13th and Friday the 13th Part 2. Now, that's something we sort of... We always said going into doing this that we never wanted to cover the things that every other horror, horror podcast is covering, but yet... And here we find ourselves. Uh, why are we doing it? Well, I think it's probably a good idea to say because some people might see The Strange and Deadly Show and think, oh, I'll give them a try. Oh, they're doing a Friday the 13th episode. But why are they only doing the first two films? So I think you're right. We need to sort of get that out the way. Basically, if this is your intro to The Strange and Deadly Show, Friday the 13th 1 and 2 were on what we call the Section 3 Video Nasties list. Now your your Cannibal Holocaust, your uh, Driller Killer and so on, they were all on the Section 2 Videos Nasties list, Section 2 of the Obscene Publications Act. But the Section 3 list, not quite as obscene as Section 2, but there was 80 plus films on the Section 3 list. No one ever went to prison for them, but they would be seized and they would be destroyed, uh, that kind of thing. But we decided, well, our friend Chris Brown did the video nasties, so we're going to do the Section 3 list because it's quite a an interesting mixed bag. And occasionally, it's not all obscure, you get the likes of Friday the 13th 1 and 2. Absolutely, and nobody's ever really covered these films in a, in, you know, in a podcast setting before. So I think... It was sort of ideal for us to tackle that. Now, we've never particularly had the desire to cover big franchises. Uh, we sort of feel that it, it's been done to death. But I think it's fair to say that Friday the 13th is one of our favourites. It's quite remarkable to me, personally, that these films even ended up on, on the Section 3 list. Um, you would sort of imagine that if they were going to put them on any list, they, they might have put them on the Video Nasties list. You know, they're certainly... I mean, I would say that the first Friday, we're going to get into it later, of course, but the first Friday, there's enough in there that would, you know, would, would certainly perhaps make it criteria for being on the Video Nazis list. If you look at some of the films on that list, they're, they're tamer than Friday the 13th. So uh, it's quite remarkable, first of all, that if they were ever going to make it on a list, they didn't make it on that one. But then you sit and think about it, well, why did they ever make it on a list in the first place, you know? And yet here, you know, here we find ourselves getting ready to talk about them. So the Section 3 list, is, it's a curious thing, isn't it? There's there's a lot of variety on it. We, I mean, you know, on the next episode, we're going to be tackling a very obscure film. Uh, so there's a broad range of things, everything from from the most obscure thing you can think of to, to something as, as well known as this. Yeah, yeah. And I think as we're going forward, I mean, it's something that I thought in the beginning anyway, but as we're going forward, I find it much easier to talk about those obscurities than I do the more well-known ones, because for that very reason that you mentioned, everything's been said. What is there to say about Friday the 13th? 
I guess we're going to find out, but... I, I, well, I, absolutely nothing, I would imagine. <laughs> I don't think we're going to be able to bring anything to it, really. But look, we're here. We're going to do this. We're, we're fighters. We're brothers in arms here. We'll, we'll try and make it through. Uh, but it is, it's, a, it's a funny thing that you, you would think, because we're so familiar with these movies that we would have a lot to talk about. But actually, everybody talks about the Friday the 13th movies. They're a sort of... They're a staple of a horror fan's diet, I think. And so it is going to be... It's a bit of a stretch for us. When I was doing the notes for this show, I normally don't struggle that much, but some of the ones I struggled on the most, writing, were the ones I wrote for The Thing and what I wrote for this show. And it's just because, you know, what do you say about films that have been discussed to death by other people that's right and i don't want it to seem like we're being snobbish in any way because i've listened to several of those podcasts that other people have done where they've went through the friday the 13th series where they've went through other classic series like that and i enjoy them a lot i enjoy those podcasts but it's personal choice you know podcasting is obviously what you're passionate about uh, and we are passionate about them but mm. like you i, I sat there and at the end of the film, my page of notes was pretty much blank because yeah. the films just kind of washed over me. They're so ingrained in everything I love about horror. And I do love the films, but, you know, something that pop into my mind, oh, I'll say that, well, people already kind of know that. You know, people already have that opinion. I've seen people say that a million times. So I don't, I don't know. I don't want to labor the point anymore, but it's a bit of a struggle, folks. Don't you worry, Tom. I have still written a needlessly dramatic synopsis for each film. So uh, we'll still have something to talk about. I still managed to dredge some words up from my soul. Maybe we should pick this up after we've talked about the first two and we can give a bit of an overview of how we think the series went from there. We're not going to go movie to movie, um, but we'll sort of give our, our thoughts on the franchise as a whole once we've done part one and part two. Absolutely. All right, I'm looking forward to that. But for now, let's get on with it, Tom. Why don't you tell the folks at home about Friday the 13th, an obscure little number they've probably never heard of before. All right, Friday the 13th, released in 1980, directed by Sean Cunningham, written by Victor Miller, Sean Cunningham, and Ron Cares. Uncredited? Okay. It's uh, 1958, and the kids and counsellors at Camp Crystal Lake are singing songs long into the night. An amorous young couple, who happen to be two of the counsellors who work there, sneak off for some fun and time together in secret, but meet a deadly end at the hands of an unseen killer. We flash forward 21 years later and meet Annie, an aspiring cook and counsellor, looking for directions to the camp. She's met with indifference and superstition from the locals, as it quickly becomes apparent that there is a story surrounding the camp. Indeed, the previous murders there aren't the only strange occurrences. Someone has attempted to sabotage the water supply and has started fires, all in the name of keeping the camp shut. Annie manages to hitch a ride halfway there and then finds another person willing to drive her the rest of the way. However, she's chased into the woods and violently killed by someone whose identity we don't know and whose face we don't see. At Camp Crystal Lake, we meet our main counsellors, Alice, played by Adrian King, Jack, played by Kevin Bacon, Marcy, Ned, Brenda, Bill, as well as owner Steve, 
and I notice you haven't written who played them because, frankly, who cares anymore? Nobody, nobody cares. <laughs> yeah, we never see them again. Uh, they're stationed at the camp and tasked with carrying out repairs and refurbishments ahead of the influx of kids arriving for the summer. Their personalities range from the level-headed Alice to fun-loving, sex-obsessed couple Jack and Marcy, while Bill handles the practical jokes. What should be a fun summer of laughs and youth gone wild becomes anything but, as it transpires that Annie's killer is stalking the grounds of the camp and is picking off the councillors one by one. As the young victims are slowly whittled down in a number of creative ways, it falls to Alice to stand against the might of a killer no one saw coming. As a car pulls up outside and the frightened Alice, having seen the bodies of her deceased friends, runs to meet the inhabitant, she'll get far more than she bargained for. Sometimes a mother's love knows no boundaries, and it's here that we meet our killer, Pamela Voorhees, the mother of a son thought dead, but one who will someday become nothing less than a legend. Doesn't he just? So Annie mm. fights a battle to the death, unaware that the end of this battle is really the beginning of a whole new war. This place. Steve should never have opened this place again. There's been too much trouble here. Did you know that a young boy drowned the year before those two others were killed? The counselors weren't paying any attention. They were making love while that young boy drowned. His name was Jason. I was working the day that it happened, preparing meals. Here, I was the cook. Jason should have been watched every minute. He was... He wasn't a very good swimmer. We can go now, dear. I think we should wait for Mr. Christie. Oh, that's not necessary. I don't understand. Today is his birthday. Where's Mr. Christie? Oh, I couldn't let them open this place again. Could I? Not after what happened. Oh, my sweet, innocent Jason. My only child. You never paid any attention. Look what you did to him. Look what you did to him. So, Chris, this is where it all begins. So, what do you think of Friday the 13th? Jason Voorhees, that psychotic bald fuck. <laughs> you know, what what do you say about Friday the Thirteenth? You know, this is the dilemma, isn't it? It's mm. a it's a it's a classic, isn't it? I mean, I'm not gonna rewatching it again and the second one. I mean, let, let, 
I've just got to get it out of the way. It, in a way, it becomes background noise to me simply because I've seen both movies so many times. Uh, but I, what I can say is that Friday the 13th is, is I would say, probably my favourite horror franchise overall. Um, even though I, I absolutely love John Carpenter's Halloween, it's my favourite movie of all time. Not just my favourite horror movie, but movie full stop. Uh, Jason Voorhees is my favourite killer. But what we have here is something that's actually quite different. Uh, it is very much... I think when you think of the the archetypal slasher movie, mm. I think Friday the 13th, that, that's what you think of, isn't it? I've always thought Halloween stands above most, if not all, other slashers. Yeah. And... I think we've spoke about it before. There's a certain quality to Halloween that I don't think many of the others have, if if any. And they tend the slashers tend to live more in the in the fun, sometimes a bit silly, a bit sexy, a bit gory sort of. I'm struggling to find the right word here, but trashy, I suppose you could say. That's the one, trashy. You know, and I think Friday the Thirteenth is in that kind of place. I mean, the first one, maybe less so than the others. Yeah, I'd go along with that, absolutely. It's a curio in a series that that goes not many places, but many places at the same time. You know, they they do have a formula to them, but this is a, this is a film that starts out as a whodunit slasher. Whether it really cheats on that is something we will probably speak about at the end. But it's interesting to see that considering the franchise is so linked to the icon of Jason Voorhees in this original movie, there's none of that. Well, there's a bit of that at the end, but it's not really what it's about. It's a whodunit slasher in the mould of other whodunit slashers where you don't see the killer. So it's it's interesting in that regard. Um, I think if I'm going to throw a Friday the 13th on, though, it's probably one of the ones that I'll throw on least of all. Yeah, no, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more, to be honest. And that is not to take away from, from the impact of this one. I think that, I mean, first of all, it, it it's like you're saying, this series is so linked with Jason Voorhees. It's not that often, really. You get a franchise where the, the first film in, in, in the series it, it doesn't feature the character that you've come to associate with it. I mean, imagine if you had a Nightmare on Elm Street and you didn't have Freddy Krueger in the first one. You know, it would be... It would be, it would be strange, wouldn't it? And I think what this film does is it begins the story of Jason Voorhees in a way that you look at it now and you think, well, they obviously had a sequel in mind for this. They always knew that they were going to carry on the Jason character. And it seems like when you look, when you actually sort of delve into this and you look at the production history, and the history behind the film and the franchise, that that was never really the intention. That Jason was only ever supposed to be used as a plot device for the character of, of Pamela Voorhees. I have to say, now Friday the Thirteenth is a classic slasher. It, it, it's interesting. It, it's it's. Not, I don't think it's anywhere near as well made as Halloween. You know, I no, I think it's. No. I think it's rough around the edges. I don't think it's very well written. I don't think it's particularly well acted. I think. Uh, I think there are a lot of flaws to it. It's a classic that has a lot of flaws. I think the reason it's considered such a classic is because it was the springboard. It is sort of the film, and we think of Halloween, of course, as being, you know, to me, that is 
yeah, it's a slasher movie that's, that doesn't have very much blood in it. But it has. So, there are so many other things going on. There's the atmosphere there, and there's the the in that movie we see the killer a lot throughout the movie. But it's done in a very suspenseful way. You see him in the background, or you see him passing by a window. In this, the the, the killer is unseen. So, it, what this movie is doing is really starting a trend, which was that it's it's a springboard for a whole genre of movies that were to become uh, that were to come. Uh, an oversaturated genre, if you ask me. By the time you get to sort of ninety, uh, sorry, eighty four, eighty five, there were so many slasher movies being made because it was incredibly cheap to do it. People would watch Friday the Thirteenth, Halloween, and they would realise that well, it doesn't really doesn't take much to get a couple of young actors together. It doesn't really matter if they can act. Get somebody in a mask or somebody who's off screen, or you never see their face. You just see their hands, which in itself is a giallo trope, and. We can just have them running around, you know, uh, squirt a bit of tomato ketchup on them and, and make a movie. And and this was so this is what I think of. I think of, of this film in particular as being the one that sort of gave birth to a lot of that kind of stuff. But in and of itself, you know, this film is it. There are a lot of problems with it. And it's not, you know, going back and seeing it again. I've seen it so many times. It's, it's quite ridiculous, actually. This isn't it simply is not as fun as some of the movies that are that are set to come later on. I think that's the key, isn't it? It's not as fun as what happens. And I think if if you plucked any two of the later films, we might not struggle as much. We might, but there's the evolution of Jason that that is quite an interesting thing and we can comment on the actors playing Jason. Well, this one's a bit different because he does this. This one's a bit different because he does that. Whereas we can't really do that here because all we see for the most part is a pair of hands or something. But what it does flag up to me, and this is a conversation that we've had before, is how slashes, good slashes, the ones that endure, are almost happy accidents at times. Yeah the ones that aren't so designed to be slasher icons that it's almost the strength of the the idea that carries them on or or how it sort of gradually develops and let's not beat about the bush the development of jason is quite clumsy from film to film and i guess we're getting ahead of ourselves here but from film to film they don't quite know what they're doing with them until they there comes a point where they're like right this is jason and this is how jason is it goes back to what you were saying before there's no jason in it but it's interesting that okay come the second film they decide they've they've got to carry on and if you compare it to films like see no evil you know that one starring kane the wrestler yeah uh, and the see no evil 2 now and i've watched both of them and it's such a, a sort of manufactured slasher that it's, I just, I could barely watch them. It You could yeah. see the pieces going into place and it's just like, you know, it didn't work. But I will put this out there. I know a lot of people deride the, the, the Saw franchise, but they made the first film and the popularity of the character who is barely in that first movie sort of carried on and carried through and and made the the series endure whether some people like him or not enough people liked him to keep going so i think that's a successful 
franchise horror icon as well. Um, so I don't quite know where I'm going here, but I guess we need to sort of broaden the net a bit to actually say something about Friday the Thirteenth. Yeah. No, I know what you say, and I think it, you know that's a very actually a very good example with Saw. I think in that case, and not to take anything away from Friday the Thirteenth, I actually happen I, I like some of the films in the Saw franchise, only a couple of them, but. Uh, I have to say that the first Saw film, I think, accomplishes what it set out to do, which is, I think it's quite it's a it's quite a well crafted movie. Mm. Uh, but I I do happen to think that that um the success of Jigsaw was happenstance, you know, and it just so happened that it that uh that he became popular, and then they, you know, they sort of fed off of that from there. I think you could you could argue that that perhaps that's the case with with Friday the Thirteenth. Now I I do have to say that that there are a couple of things about this movie that have always bothered me. Um, mm. no, so let me tell a lie. They haven't always bothered me, but they've bothered me... F- firstly, the, the the more I've gotten into Italian cinema, and secondly, just the older I've gotten and the more I've looked at the logic issues with it. Um, we haven't even gotten into, pl- on the pl- into the plot on this, really, but, I mean, it's fairly... It's quite a stock thing, really, when you get right down to it. And maybe it didn't seem so stock back then, but when we watch it now... It, you know, it, it it seems sort of, it's quite meat and potatoes, isn't it? You know, uh, I mean, there is a, you mentioned the formula before. When you get right down to it, I mean, if you sat here and watched the, the box set that you've got, Tom, which we're going to talk about later, hmm. you sit and watch the box set and you watch these movies back to back, up to a certain point, I would say certainly the first four or five, then they're quite interchangeable. You know, yeah. there is a formula, which is that, you know, certainly from the second one onwards, there's Jason, and here's a bunch of young people, and he's going to prowl, you know, the grounds of Camp Crystal Lake and pick them off one by one, and then somebody will defeat him at the end, and he'll come back in the next one, and it, you know, and it, it, it there, there, so there is a real formula there. For some reason, it's a formula that works for me, uh, and for you. It, I've seen on Twitter and just you know, hearing from different people that some people that it, it's a formula that doesn't work for them. Um, but just going back to what I was saying quickly, the things that, that kind of bother me about it. First of all, I think it would be remiss of us if we didn't dis- discuss a film by Mario Bava called A Bay of Blood. Yeah. And yeah. the reason we need to talk about it is because th- there's always been this, this interesting thing. I, there's an old, old mate of mine years ago when I was doing the Gore Boy radio show who used to, to, used to say, well, I, I hate Friday the 13th because I, for, for two reasons. Number one, because I don't buy that, now this is him saying this, but I, I agree to a certain point, I don't buy that Pamela Voorhees could do all of these things considering she's supposed to be, you know, a much older woman. Hmm. Uh, and the second thing is that they clearly ripped off almost the entire thing from A Bay of Blood. And going on to see A Bay of Blood... It, Directed by one of the great masters of horror, Mario Bava, one of my my very favourites. Yeah, you know, Sean S. Cunningham has always said, "I I never saw a Bay of Blood. I don't know if I believe him, Tom. I I I mean, have you seen the film for 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 one? I have, I have. It's interesting you say that because I was watching one of the special features on the Blu-ray disc of the first movie, and there's an interview with Victor Miller, and he says his conversations with Sean Cunningham were. Let's do a Halloween ripoff, yeah. and the things he said are, okay, we need a pre-existing evil, which in Halloween's case is Michael Myers, that returns 
to a place where adults aren't any help to the kids who are trapped. So you can see how both films have that going for them. He doesn't mention a Bay of Blood either, but there's just no escape in it. I mean, is there an arrow kill in Bay of Blood? Is I can't remember whether it's the arrow through the neck kill or the spear through, but I don't know. There's a kill in there which is really recreated in one of the Friday the 13th movies. I can't remember it's, which it's, one. It's the second one, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, just to sort of explain it, I, mean, I, kind of, I don't want to spoil a Bay of Blood, but at the same time, it's like... I mean, look, let's get right down to it. Bay of Blood is, is very much set in a, in a... It's a similar setting. It's, you know, set by a lake. Um, it's a, Now, there's a problem with the Bay of Blood, which is that it, it's, it's quite convoluted. Mm, and, um, and I don't think it works, ultimately. But it is one of... It's probably the nastiest film Barber made. Uh, and quite different for him. He was quite a stylish director, and, and that one is quite sort of gritty and... And a bit fantastical, I want to say. And there, are, there's more than one killer in the movie. Let's just say that. And it all gets a bit, it gets a bit mixed. You know, I don't think he quite had it down. But one of the killers in the movie is wearing the same jumper that Pamela Voorhees wears. Now, Bay of Blood came out in '74, I think, maybe. Wow. Um, I can't remember. So, so you've got the the setting, which is very similar. You've got one of the killers wearing the same sweater, and. Like you mentioned there, in Friday the 13th Part 2, there's a couple having sex. Um, I guess we're skipping forward to that one. Uh, there's a couple having sex, and Jason comes in, and he, he shoves a spear through both of them. And uh, the spear comes out through the bottom of the bed. And there's a scene like that. that it, it, I mean, it's pretty much the same. It's the same kill. It's mm. the same kill as in Bay of Blood, which was released much, much, you know, many, many, many years earlier. And there's also, it's not exactly the same, but there is a machete in the face, if I remember rightly, in, in a Bay of Blood. Somebody goes to answer the door, I think. I haven't seen a Bay of Blood for a while. They go to answer a door and they open it and somebody shoves a, a machete, one of the mysterious kids shoves, shoves a machete in their face. And it, it resembles the axe murder in this, in this film, Friday the 13th, where... Uh, where uh, what's her name Mar uh, Marcy gets a uh, an axe in the face. So I don't know, Tom. I, I you know Sean Cunningham's always said I've heard some arguments from people saying, well, look, it must be coincidence. I I'm not convinced that he didn't. You know, to me, this film it it doesn't really resemble Halloween apart from from you know some tropes, which yeah. weren't even tropes at the time. Really, they were just happy accidents. Um, in the case of Halloween, I, I, I've got a feeling that there, there was quite a bit of influence from that one here. Um, but yeah, look, uh, and let's get to the logic issue of it. Uh, can, could Pamela Voorhees do any of this stuff? She's an older woman. Uh, how can she be hoisting these bodies up and hanging them off ceilings and above doors and things like that? Now, I know, look, it's, it's a horror movie. It's, it, it's high fantasy to some degree. But I can I can understand the logic, you know. My, like I was saying, my mate, he used to say, oh, "I don't I, I I don't like the movie because it doesn't make sense to me." I mean, how do you feel about that? I must admit, I've never really gave it a second thought. I mean, thinking about it now, you're absolutely right. There is one thing in her favour, being the older woman, is that she would approach you and you would you wouldn't be scared of her, so she would get close, and then all of a sudden, bang, you're dead. So. I will take I will take that on board. But hoisting fully grown men up into places so they can, you know, swing down and stuff like that. It's uh, it does 
belie belief a little bit, but I've never really thought about it until you mentioned it right now. But even like you were saying, you know, hoisting the bodies up and having them swing down when the final girl is running past them. These are all things that at the time were quite new mm. and they they became cliches of the genre. So you can't deny the influence of it, can you? You know, it, it, it's, it was a remarkable influence, even though there are, you know, there are there are flaws to it. And it's not ultimately it's not one of the films in the franchise that I go to. I, I don't think it's anywhere near being one of the most fun ones, but yet it still it survives and it endures because of its reputation as something of a, you know, I suppose as something of an influence, even though I could argue that I think that. You know, Sean, Sean S. Cunningham, I mean, let's get right down to it. I think Sean, I think he's one of those directors who got lucky. Yeah. And I think you would tend to agree with me. And I also feel the same way about Wes Craven. I know that's... Definitely. You know, I think, yeah, I think we've talked about that before, actually, Tom, that, that you, know, you and I are both in agreement on that. I think Sean Cunningham is one of those guys, he, he happened upon a good thing. Because if you look at his filmography as a director... This is the only thing he ever did of, of any note, as far as I know. I mean, if you look at everything else that's there, I mean, is, is there anything else there that, that that's notable? I don't think there is. And when you you look at this, it does have some moments of suspense. I, I would give it mm. that. And it does look quite nice in some ways. But I kind of, I mean, looking at it on Blu-ray, it, it does look lovely. They have done a great job on the Blu-ray, beautiful surroundings and so on. And there's a couple of scenes here and there that are quite suspenseful. Like, there's a scene where Alice is making, she's making coffee or something like that. And she's slightly uneasy, not a great deal. But she's sort of just looking around a little bit and it's silent. And she's in that cabin on her own making coffee. And it's just, it goes on for quite a while, just this silent sequence. Yeah. And he, he does do a couple of good uh, things like that. So, but yeah, he's not a great director by any means. No, not at all. I think he's been very lucky to be associated with a, a franchise that has made millions and millions and millions of dollars, quite quite unknowingly on his part, I would imagine. I mean, let's talk about Alice, uh, Tom, because she is the first final girl in the uh, in the series. And I think very much the, the sort of archetypal one, you've got the, if you like, the virginal, very clean cut, good natured, level headed female character who would become very much a, you know, very much the the uh, the sort of cliched, if you like, surviving character in these movies. I mean, how do we feel about her? She's fine. I I don't really have strong feelings about her, to be honest. I mean, she's Jamie Lee Curtis did it with Halloween. It's the same mm. sort of the virginal last girl uh, kind of scenario. And she's fine, you know, she's likeable. I don't want her to die. I can't say that for everyone, uh, especially as the series goes on. Um, yeah. So I'm okay with her. You know, I can't really say much more than that. She she doesn't ignite any great kind of uh, love for me, for the character, but, you know, I like her. Yeah, she's not a particularly great actor by any means uh, in, in this or in the, the second part, but... She's a lovely woman, actually, in real life. I had a chance to chat with her many, many years ago and um, just sort of doing an interview thing, which never got aired. That's a shame. Yeah, which is a big shame because she was a really, really nice person. And uh, 
And so I've always had a had a soft spot for it. By no means, you know, my, my favorite, you know, final girl, quote unquote, in in the series. But it, it's it's just interesting again to sort of with all the flaws here to to just sort of see all these different influences that would be would end up becoming big cliches in the genre of having that final girl. Uh, it wasn't always a girl, but most of the time that's why we have the term final girl because it just became something that was that was you know I guess a signature of of this particular genre, which was that you would have it would normally be a female who ended up surviving. Um, you know, at the end of the movie, and and she's, for all intents and purposes, that well, she is the first one in the Friday franchise. I feel like Jamie Lee Curtis is is, I mean, she's always going to be my favourite of all of course, time. Of course, you know, I mean, there is a, and also there is, there's something assured about her, even you know that early on in her in her acting career. There's, I I feel like I can tell. I don't know. Maybe it's just because. Of course, by the time I, as I was growing up, she was already quite a big name. But I feel like I can tell when I watch Halloween that she was always meant to move on to, to bigger and better things. I mean, let's talk about Pamela Voorhees. It, it's it's interesting, Tom, that if we think about this film in particular, maybe even the next one. You know, nowadays when we we think of the Friday the Thirteenth franchise and moving on throughout the series. I know that that for me personally, I, there's there comes a certain point where I start I started to root for Jason, yeah, <laughs> as as opposed to the actors in the movie. Let, let, make no bones about it. Most of the actors in these movies, certainly in the early ones, were not very good. So in this movie, because they they're not that great, you don't have any. You don't. I mean, you've got Alice, of course, but you don't really have anybody. There's not a mascot to root for, whereas. With Jason later on, as he becomes a more prevalent and uh, notable character, you, you really do start to root because there's so there's so much stupidity, you know, and you want Jason to shut these people up, you know, and yeah. take them out of commission. But we don't have that here. What we have is Pamela Voorhees. And in a strange way, even though she's an unbelievable psycho, played by Betsy Palmer, of course, uh, I didn't put. I don't think I put that in the uh, the notes there. But Betsy Palmer, who I think does does a good job with this. I mean, she she plays a psycho well, doesn't she? She does. I think the minute she shows up, because everyone else is sort of a bit amateurish, you can tell she has some chops about her. You can tell she comes from a different age of of mm. film. I think in the early scenes where we don't necessarily know that she's a psycho. And I mean, whether this is a cheat or not, I guess we'll speak about it in a sec. But when we first meet her and Alice thinks she's a bit of a saviour, she still has a very old Hollywood acting style, I think. And then as she gets crazier and crazier, that is to her credit. And I think it, it it's used to good effect, that, that acting style, because she's a bit bigger, a bit broader than everyone else. Her performance is bigger, and she really does play the crazy very well indeed. Yeah, and you can tell that she's more experienced, beyond mm. a doubt. I mean, she was uh, a stage actress, I think, at that point. And, and in fact, uh, I've got it in the trivia here, but I might as well read it since we're talking about her. Uh, Betsy Palmer, who plays the deadly Pamela Voorhees in the film, famously described the script prior to taking the role as a piece of shit. Uh, she, <laughs> took, she took the role because she wanted a new car. Mm-hmm. Um, she has, of course, become much fonder of her role and of the film over the years. She now appears at conventions and things like that. And a lot of these actors do. 
but it, it so it's interesting. In fact, this is actually an extra. I didn't really have time to watch much of it, but there's an extra on the Blu-ray of this where she's. I don't know if it's on yours. I imagine it would be where she's. Um, they've got a reunion panel. Yeah, yeah. At a convention, you know the one I'm talking about. I do, yeah. And she she's sitting there. She's talking about reading the script and calling it a piece of shit. And she's sitting right next to Victor Miller, who wrote the <laughs> script. And there is a look on his face. I don't know if he if he references it later on or anything, but because uh, I sort of stopped watching it not long, I just didn't have time of getting this ready. But um, <laughs> there's a look on his face like you fucking. <laughs> 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 but I, I don't know if I disagree with her. I, I don't think it's a particularly well written, well written movie to be honest with you. But she definitely she brings something to it, and she goes. I mean, it's OTT. I mean, you mentioned there that there there might be a bit of cheating. I mean, explain what you mean by that. Well, basically, we've talked about who done it slashes before, haven't we? Where mm-hmm. it's full of red herrings, but then you find out, like, look a happy birthday to me. But then you find out it's one of the characters who've been in it all along. Whereas this presents as a whodunit slasher, but you can't guess who it is because we we only meet her at the end, just before yeah. she goes crazy. Um, and I have read some people saying that's a bit of a cheat. I think because it's so ingrained in my psyche and I've known this movie for so long that... It's just the way it is to me, and I, I don't really care. Yeah, I agree with you. It, it's interesting. I feel like when you go back and watch this movie now, you unless you just happen not to, to have not read anything about it or heard anything about the franchise, which is pretty difficult, I would imagine, if you're into horror movies at all or getting into them. It, it's difficult now to watch it not knowing the background of, of the whole thing, not knowing that this is sort of what game gave birth to the name Jason Voorhees and so yeah I think watching it now it's very difficult to not be not be influenced by that but not be tainted by it in some way but you've got it I do certainly ahead of recording this show I, I did try and sort of sit and think about what it must have been like watching the movie for the first time back then mm. and and really not knowing knowing anything and it, and it is true you you can sort of understand I get the feeling that Victor Miller was very much telling the truth when he said that Jason was meant to be used as a plot device because if you think about it it, it it's, it's quite a weak reason for deciding to to you know take out every camp counsellor who ever appears at the camp you know um, it, it seems like it's just been sort of shoved in there at the end to give the killer a reason for doing what they do and in many ways if this had been the only film and there never was a franchise; it just was Friday the Thirteenth. It may, it maybe might have seemed as nonsensical as something like my, uh, not my birthday, uh, Happy Birthday to me. Hmm. It just so happens that we know now that this was the springboard for a whole franchise that was to come, and of course the the Jason Voorhees character would grow and evolve and become the mascot of the thing. So, but it is interesting to sit and sort of think that that. Yeah, there is a little bit of cheating going on there because you're sort of sitting there thinking, oh, who could it be? Who could it be? Who's doing this? Mm. And in actual fact, you, you can't guess it because it's not revealed until the end of the movie. And then it really, you know, you're not given any backstory whatsoever until you meet Pamela. So, yeah, it's a, it's a curious one, isn't it? That, that how different it fit, how different it must have felt to have watched it back then. I uh, I can't remember my first view, and so I'm not sure how it really played then. But I think 
obviously we're sort of dipping into the later films to a point but we can't really talk about the film without talking about the kills and the gore mm. and uh, and that sort of thing the effects i mean what do you think in that regard well these were handled by tom savini weren't they mm-hmm. which is i mean look tom savini is is one of my heroes uh, don't particularly want to meet him in real life he's uh, supposedly not a very nice chap when you meet him at conventions but as far yeah i mean somebody i always wanted to be really i always wanted to you know my girlfriend is a makeup effects artist and so and i always wanted to do it i always had and i've always loved practical effects uh, always will do always love them more than than cgi and so Tom Savini was really the first person I, I can remember thinking, I want to be that guy. And I think some of the some of the gore scenes here are good. You know, I think he's done better work. If you look at The Prowler, for example, mm-hmm. which I don't know if we're going to get... I think we're going to get to that, aren't we? I think we that's are, it. Yeah. yeah, that's on the Section 3 list. If you look at The Prowler, for example, I think there are a couple of scenes in there. Certainly the knife going up through the chin, I think, is one of the best effects he ever did. And, of course, the, the maniac, the exploding head... Um, is, is a classic but i do think he does good work here i think there are a couple of i mean for me the most memorable kill it always goes back to the axe in the face it just lingers with me yeah it's a good one it's a good one and i think uh the kevin bacon arrow through the neck is good i oh. think there's a certain romance to these kind of effects if to if that's the right word but where you know kevin bacon is submerged underneath the bed there's a fake body on top and you know they'll have certain wires set up to pump blood out, and the arrow comes through a certain way, and it must take hours and hours to set up, and then yeah. they try and do it in one shot, and I think that there is a certain romance to that, and I love practical effects for the same reason, and Tom Savini was the master, and he was my hero too because he was always good value on special features, and I've heard the rumours that he's a bit of a grouch now at conventions and stuff, but when you looked at him on special features or if he did a DVD commentary, he always seemed like the guy you'd want to hang out with because he seemed like a good laugh, you know? That's what I don't really understand about that. I mean, I don't want to go on about it, but if you go to to Google and and you type in Tom Savini is an arsehole, uh, you'll actually there's a, a a website you can go to where it's it's a blog that is just full of people who've met him in real life and have had horrible experiences and it's like oh man you know he always seemed like such a cool guy you know I mean it seems to be I suppose it varies really depending on what his mood is like but certainly as far as his work goes as a makeup effects artist yeah and you're talking about the the arrow through the neck kill it, technically the effect went wrong is that there wasn't supposed to be as much blood as there was right. but but the the tube sort of uh, this is not exactly what happened. The tube kind of exploded, and more blood ended up coming out, and it made the effect better, even though it was a mistake. Um, of course, we've got to talk about the fact that that uh, the the version of the movie we watched is the uncut version, which, as far as I'm aware, apart from uh, Jason Goes to Hell, there's a UK DVD that's uncut of that, and I think there's an American one as well. Uh, so that film and this one, and I guess you can you can include the remake as well. The only films in the series that are, that are available uncut. It's an ongoing gripe that the fans have. Mm. That, I mean, I'm not. I think I'm not sure how much grief this film got, but I know by the time uh, the later films were coming around, the um, 
Motion Picture Association of America, MPAA, is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They were coming down on them hard, and there was cuts being made to each and every one, and they seemed to be getting uh, hunted down and made to sort of take bits out and so on. So some of them can seem quite neutered in some ways, which is a shame. And fans have always thought that this footage must must exist somewhere, but it's never seen the light of day. And I don't know what the truth is. I've heard that actually it's been destroyed. It doesn't exist, but I don't know. I mean, do you? I don't, to be honest. M- my feeling is that it probably does exist somewhere. Uh, there's probably a bit of a there's probably a bit of myth in there as well because there mm. always is. There's always more footage available than than we think there is. But then there there also might be less than we think is available. W- w- one thing I think that we we can be fairly certain of is that Paramount Pictures who ended who released these movies i think up until jason goes to hell uh but don't quote me on that i'm not sure i think they they released everything up until jason goes to hell paramount pictures have never ever liked this series ever um they i think were quite supportive of the first one and i don't know maybe the second but after a while they got tired of the formula they hated the movies the problem was and it was a problem for them and not for the uh, the people who were making the movies is that the movies would always make a lot of money. And it, it's one of those examples of, of, of a business decision of saying, look, we don't like these movies, but they make money. I mean, there are probably a lot of executives in Hollywood who hate the Transformers movies, but they make a ton of money. And so, look, hey, as long as they make money, we're going to keep putting them out. And that's exactly what happened with Paramount. They tried to kill the franchise with part four. <laughs> that's why they called it the final chapter. And the movie made so much money that they, we have to bring it back. And unfortunately, we're in that situation where now, of course, the MPAA, things are a lot are a lot more relaxed now. We're able to get away with a lot more. Mm-hmm. I, I think if Paramount cared about the series or Warner Brothers, I guess the rights are... I, I remember reading something about, I think Warner Brothers have given up their rights to Friday the 13th in return for production credits on Interstellar. Yeah, I heard something along those lines as well. I'm not sure exactly, but I think it's back with Paramount, isn't it? Right. <laughs> I think it's probably even worse now. But I think if if Paramount cared enough about the series, I think we would have seen uncut versions of these movies by now. My feeling is they probably do exist. I just don't think that that anyone cares enough to put them out. I think if you put these movies, I mean, look, it's a treat. If you put these movies in the hands of Arrow Video, I think... Yeah, I mean, can you imagine that if they did a, a restoration on this series? I, I think it would be it would be something amazing. But unfortunately, it won't happen. So what you've got as we go along in the series, you can tell that most of the death scenes in these movies, especially in Part Seven, yeah. um, the the new blood, they've just gutted them, haven't they? And you get sort of quick flashes of things, but you know they should be much gorier than they are. They just the MPAA just came down on them so hard. I guess we we'll probably come back to that later on, and and the various additions that you can get um, but maybe we should cap off number one with the iconic ending you know it's it's interesting that it's something they tried to top going forward as well or at least match up it had to have the last scare and as well yeah. as the last scare you get the very telegraphed framing of the last shot where the lovely music playing and then you see it again in part two lovely music playing with 
someone in the corner of the screen with enough space for <laughs> you know Jason to jump out in and give us that last scare. So you can always see it coming. Yeah, and we know it so well now as well, don't we? I mean, we're so sort of experienced with slasher movies that it never seems surprising. I mean, it's funny you say that. I always have... It, it surprises me as a horror fan. And, you know, I'm not trying to be judgmental about anybody else. It always surprises me when people when people are surprised, when there's, you know, the character is in one tiny corner of the screen. There's like a, a shot of a window. And yeah. you know something's going to crash through the window. You know, it's obvious to us, but to, for some people who are not well experienced with horror movies they never seem to see that coming i mean this is yeah the final shot of jason rising up out of the water and pulling alice down off the boat she's at this at this point i guess we should say look, everybody knows it. that's why we haven't really covered the plot because everybody knows that mm. she you know it's pamela Voorhees is the killer everybody else is dead apart from alice and she ends up there's a big battle that goes on quite a while actually it's a long sequence isn't it in, in the movie of them fighting each other and in the end alice lops her head off and so she's in the boat now and it's lovely and it's serene relaxing like you say lovely music and the reason they did that is because they wanted to give everybody a sort of full sense of security and it's the Carrie ripoff scene isn't it basically is the similar thing happened in Carrie where right near the end of the movie Carrie's hand comes up through the earth and grabs hold of the uh, arm I think of uh, a character whose name I can't remember now but um me neither no but but I mean, look, they pretty much ripped that se- that scene off, or certainly the intended effect of it, which is the the thing that you need to know about Friday the Thirteenth is there are there are a lot of things that influenced it. There are a lot of, a lot of things it ripped off, and then somehow it ended up becoming you know the blueprint of what we see later on. But I I, I don't, it, nowadays it makes me laugh <laughs> the shot just because <laughs> you can tell that it was designed to just freak people out in the theater, and apparently. Uh, Tom Savini would would sneak into theatres when he knew that the film was about to end, so that he could just catch the reaction, the reactions of audience members. I think it's very possible that were it not for this scene, Friday the Thirteenth might be just a bit more of a footnote in slasher history. Because I remember watching it as a kid, and it scared the shit out of me. And that's that's not no exaggeration. Uh, I I actually do remember to this day. I can't remember whether I felt cheated by Mrs. Voorhees being the killer, but I do remember Jason jumping out of that lake and absolutely shitting myself. And Did you actually literally shit yourself? <laughs> you never know. I could have done. But <laughs> it works, and it worked then, and I think were it not for this, we might not even be talking about part two. In a strange way, that's where it all begins for me. It's yeah. like we, you know, we 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 know that Jason exists because Pamela has told us about him, and the the counselors who weren't paying attention to him when he drowned, and and then we see him rise up at the end there, which you know, for all intents and purposes, is is supposed to be a dream, isn't it? So we, you know, we, so we're sort of thinking at that point. Well, I'm sure Victor Miller was thinking at that point. Well, look, it's supposed to be, you know, Alice has fallen asleep in the boat. And yeah. she's just dreaming that this has happened. But in reality, I think as Friday the 13th fans, we sort of think, right, this is the point where Jason rises up out of the water and he's joined this world and um, is going to be haunting everybody else for many, 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 many years to come. But I suppose they weren't thinking about that at the time. No, and I guess when we talk about part two, we will have a little think about how Jason comes to be in part two 
at all. But that's uh, that's coming in a few minutes. Should we box off a bit of trivia and move on? Yeah, let's do it. So we were talking about Sean S. Cunningham before. Um, he'd previously produced infamous video Nasty, The Last House on the Left, which was directed by Wes Craven, who we mentioned a little while ago. Uh, Cunningham tasked ro- uh, writer Victor Miller with writing a script that essentially ripped off 1978's Halloween and the Bay of Blood. Uh, the John Carpenter classic that had helped to create the slasher movie blueprint that this film would build upon. Uh, the film was made on a... Now, th- now this is substantial... The film was made on a budget of $550,000 and would go on to gross nearly $40 million at the box office upon its release. I mean, you've got to hand... I mean, that's an incredible success, isn't it? Absolutely. No wonder. There's so many of these movies. That's the kind of returns they get. That's the thing, isn't it? I mean, that's what that's probably what Paramount hated the most, which is that they could make these movies quite cheaply and they would just they would make a mint at the box office. Uh, I told you about Bexley Palmer. Uh, Jason Voorhees was never intended by Victor Miller to be anything more than a plot device for this particular movie, nor was he ever thinking of making any sequels with the character included. Uh, unbeknownst to him and anyone else, of course, the inclusion of Jason in the subsequent films would see the franchise go on to massive box office success and Jason would become the key component of every film in the series of uh, series to come so of course the final bit of trivia we we couldn't go without mentioning him harry manfredini's powerful music would become iconic to the horror fans in particular the key 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 ma 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 sound we so cl- closely associate with the friday franchise it was actually inspired by betsy palmer saying killer mommy killer <laughs> yeah she doesn't <laughs> laugh like a psycho like that in the end that was me in the last section of the film uh, manfredini spoke the syllables ke and ma into a microphone added a delay effect onto it and created the sound we all know and love today and everybody's heard that story you know i don't even know why i wrote it in the notes it's probably one of the stories people have heard the most but um but the, the music is i mean every time i i, I watch this movie it, it it's very sharp isn't it and sort of I don't know how to... It's so sharp and angular and, and it gets the point across, doesn't it? It does. I, I do think it, it's very good. Very good for the movie. Probably one of the things that raises it a bit. Um, it's funny you should say that. I've mentioned before I'm a bit of a vinyl guy. I like the horror soundtracks on vinyl. And I bought Friday the 13th lately. I think it was Waxwork Records that brought it out. Mm-hmm. And I played it, but it's not one of those soundtracks that... I could sit and listen to, and I think it's because of what you said. It's quite angular, and you know, you don't sit there listening to something that's so jolty and jerky. And yeah, uh, and I actually ended up putting it on eBay and flogging it because I just thought I'm never going to listen to that again. It was a beautiful release, don't get me wrong, but I just thought I didn't enjoy listening to that outside of the movie. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, and there are bits in there that are that are signatures throughout the series, you know, the dun 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 you know. But it it just is so it's it's full on, you know. I feel like when I'm listening to it that I really am being chased by a, a psycho. So it's it is yeah, it's not one of those soundtracks that I personally would own, but that's not to say that it's not effective. It it really I think it adds a lot to this, especially since for most of the movie we don't actually see the killer. And so in a way, the music it 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 serves as a villain in itself, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. All right, so let's finish this one. Uh, look, Friday the Thirteenth is available on DVD and Blu-ray globally. You can find it anywhere you go. This is not some obscure film you're going to struggle to find. Um, in the UK, it can be purchased as a standalone, uncut Blu-ray release. Just to say, the reason we 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 often sort of focus on the Blu-ray is because I think Tom and I are, are, are largely the same. I I tend to not buy DVDs anymore unless it's something I know I can't get on Blu-ray. 
I think we tend to focus on that just because those are the releases we tend to go for these days are the Blu-ray ones. Of course, you're, you, you, you're more than likely going to find a DVD equivalent of something somewhere. Uh, so yeah, standalone uncut Blu-ray release, which I have, as well as uh, fr uh, Friday Parts 2 and 3. These are available as standalone releases in the UK. Uh, of course, Parts 2 and 3 are not uncut, so do bear that in mind. But this first one is uncut. The film can also be purchased as part of a US Blu-ray box set entitled The Complete Collection. The set is region free. Now, I don't own that. I've always wanted to own it. I just can't afford it. Uh, Tom, you've got that set, haven't you? I have. It's it's a mixed bag, I think. It comes in a tin, and I always like a tin. Me too. It's got every movie. The reason you would want to own this is because they have done a, a really nice job on the transfers, I think. They do look lovely. Um, but I won't harp on too much about it, but if you are the Friday the 13th completist, you're going to need three things. You're going to need the complete collection on Blu-ray for the transfers. Mm -hmm. you, you're going to need from Crystal Lake to Manhattan that box set because, and this is what annoys me sometimes with you know Paramount and their releases and how they've done this, there are commentaries on from Crystal Lake to Manhattan that aren't on the complete collection Blu-rays. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to make a, a complete, beautiful Blu-ray box set, why would you not port those commentaries over? You yeah. know, I mean, there's one for part three on Crystal Lake to Manhattan. I think there's a couple more. So anyway, so I think if you're the Friday the 13th completist, you need both of those. And the third thing is obviously the Crystal Lake Memories documentary. Yes, which we will talk about I think I, we'll talk about that in more detail after we, we get through discussing uh, the next film here. But it's, yeah, I, I and I have to say, by the way, I mean, like I said, I don't own this set. But looking at the cover of it, I, I can't work out why they used a picture of uh, Jason from, from Jason Goes to Hell, where he looks like a big meatball. <laughs> I've never understood. <laughs> to me, that's not sort of, I don't consider that to be a particularly, you know, the iconic look for Jason. I would have thought you'd maybe have used... Something part from part, part six or part seven. Yeah, it, mm. it sort of, it baffles me. It, it, again, it, it strikes me as being something that they put out because they had to and not, yeah. Yeah, there's no love and love or care in it, is there really? Okay, so that was Friday the 13th, folks. We probably recycled a bunch of information you've heard before, but hopefully we covered it adequately. Now it's time to move on to Friday the 13th, part two and i'm going to tell you about that one it was released in 1981 the following year directed by steve minor uh, written by ron kurz sean s cunningham he created characters uncredited in the film and victor miller who created characters in the film uh, set five years after the events at camp crystal lake friday the 13th part two introduces us to one of horror's most enduring icons the legendary freddy krueger <laughs> not really the legendary Jason Voorhees, uh, presumed dead by his mother, Jason was actually living in the woods near the camp. Now, all grown up, he sets out to avenge the death of his mother by stalking and killing Alice two months after surviving the battle at Crystal Lake. Uh, I should just point out, by the way, that he kills Alice two months after that, but the actual uh, most of the events in, in part two actually do take place five years afterwards. Meanwhile, another camp opens near the same lake, and for all intents and purposes, it's business as usual. A new group of counsellors attend camp for training, led by Paul, played by John Fury, Ginny, played by Amy Steele, and Ted, played by Stu Charno. Our new group of potential victims is comprised of Terry, Sandra, Jeff, Mark, Vicky, and Scott. 
and probably Bob. It's probably a Bob in there somewhere, Tom. Much like before, an unseen killer prowls the camp, picking off the young counsellors one by one. Even Crazy Ralph appears, uh, warning anyone he can find that they're all doomed. And we never did mention Crazy Ralph, but uh, he doesn't last that long in this film. But he's the guy who... I think that in itself also became a cliche in some of these horror movies. The crazy old guy who would warn the the young potential victims away. The mm. danger that lurked around the corner. Uh, as we approach the third act, we finally get a glimpse at our killer, the iconic Jason. One film before, he required his signature hockey mask. Now here he wears a sack over his head, and he's just as deadly as ever. However, for him it won't be so easy. Ginny, a strong and brave girl who refuses to rule out Jason's existence, will come face to face with the killer that no one can ever seem to put down. Well, she'll try as hard as she can as she and Paul fight a battle to the death. Discovering Jason's shack, there's a curious shrine dedicated to someone very close to the man himself and a very familiar-looking sweater. I don't want to scare anyone, but I'm going to give it to you straight about Jason. His body was never recovered from the lake after he drowned. And if you listen to the old-timers in town, they'll tell you he's still out there. Some sort of demented creature. Surviving in the wilderness. Full-grown by now. Stalking. Stealing what he needs. Living off wild animals and vegetation. Some folks claim they've even seen him. Right in this area. The girl who survived that night at Camp Blood, that... Friday the 13th, she claimed she saw him. She disappeared two months later, vanished. Blood was everywhere. No one knows what happened to her. Legend has it that Jason saw his mother beheaded that night, and he took his revenge. A revenge that he'll continue to seek if anyone ever enters his wilderness again. And by now, I guess you all know, we're the first to return here. Five years, five long years, he's been dormant. And he's hungry. Jason's out there. Watching. Always on the prowl for intruders. Waiting to kill. Waiting to devour. Thirsty for young blood. So it's Friday the 13th, part two. Tom, what are your views on this one? I think we can see the template start to become a little more solid now. And it's not only the template for the Friday the 13th to come, but camp slashes themselves. And I don't mean camp slashes like, you know, camp, camp. <laughs> um, but well, starring Kenneth Williams. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, slashes set in summer camps. This was the template for those as well. And it's where things start to become a bit more fun, I think. It's still quite gritty and grimy in its way, 
but when the teens arrive, I think as far as Friday the 13th goes, they're quite a likeable bunch. There's some later on where you just can't wait for them to die. Um, the the ginger guy in this one, I wouldn't have minded him getting off, but he's the only one who survives. Um, but no, see, that, see, you funny you say that, because he's one of the ones I like. He's, he's he's all, he's all, he, he walks that line for me. Something he's he's all right, you know. He's he's a yeah. nice guy, but sometimes I just I want to punch you in the face. <laughs> do you want to do you want to punch me in the face sometimes? Constantly, but yeah, I understand why now. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, they are a likable bunch, and it's where things start to get a bit more fun. You can definitely tell the TNA factor is amped up a bit. You know, the girls who don't get topless are still wear tight tops or bikinis and, and things like that. There's more nipples in the movie than Batman Forever. And it's yep. like, <laughs> you can see where this is going. So the pieces are starting to fall into place. Strangely, the, the one thing that isn't quite there yet is Jason. And we'll get into that because he's quite a different animal from what he'd become. Um, but, you know, I, I enjoy this. It's still, it's not going to be probably top of the list, but it might be somewhere just below the middle as to, to ones that I would throw on when I just want a bit of a, you know, a bit of a trashy good time. There are things like the fact that really it takes about 40 minutes after that first kill for anything to really happen of substance. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so that's me, you know, I... I enjoy it. I, I do like it. Probably more than the first one. <laughs> when you said that uh, Jason is a different animal, it made it sound like he turned into a parrot or something. And he's wearing a sack over his head. Um, <laughs> interesting, wouldn't it, man? A slasher movie where a parrot is the killer. Why did they never do that? Why am I not a filmmaker, Tom? I don't know. This. What, what, what were some of our other ideas? MacReady reading to the baby thing in bed. And now a parrot <laughs> slasher. <laughs> Yeah, I think the parrot slasher is more feasible, <laughs> I would say. Well, maybe it isn't. I don't know. I'm always up for a challenge. Uh, yeah, look, this has got a, it's got a much more fun sort of energy to it. Uh, this, is, I think, is where, you be, like you say, you begin to see the formula taking shape. And we get to spend the movie. I mean, again, they, they play with the whodunit angle a little bit again. Um, but this is our, the de- basically, for all intents and purposes, the debut of the Jason as, as we know him to be. Uh well, what I mean by that is, you know, the sort of the adult, grown-up Jason who is a killer. But he, like you say, he's he's more of a prototype, isn't he, for what would come later on. Um, now, I have to say, let's go back to the characters for a moment. Yeah, like you said, you you weren't terribly keen on Ted. I mean, he's one of the few comedic characters in the in the series who I don't who I didn't mind because uh, mm. there are some of them who are quite irritating. I mean, I found myself quite annoyed by. I think the. I think the guy's name is Bill in the first one. He's the one who comes out and does the, um, you know, the Cherokee Indian impression and all that. I found, I just found him incredibly yes, irritating. Yes. Whereas, and I couldn't wait for him to go. Whereas Ted, you know, I didn't mind it. And he's one of the luckiest people in the history of the franchise because he, you know, they're at, later on in the movie, I know we're skipping forward, but they're at a bar. It's him, Paul and Ginny. And they're sitting there drinking. He decides not to go back to camp. He's going to stay at the bar longer, and it ends up saving his own life. So well done, Ted. And you know, and I, I'm I'm not too um I'm never too annoyed by him. And like you say, nobody really here that that's very annoying. What one thing I do think that really stands out is that we have 
Amy Steele playing Ginny, who is my favourite final girl in the series. She really is. I think she's... I think Amy Steele herself is just very likeable. She's a beautiful woman. Uh, she, you know, has done a lot of work over the... You know, not a lot of work in the horror genre, but was in... This film was in April Fool's Day, which is another film I liked her in. I, I think it, it's nice to have somebody who's strong and also quite capable. Uh, I mean, how do you feel about uh, uh, Amy Steele as Ginny? I've never really uh, ranked my uh, my final girls in Friday the 13th. And I know you haven't sat there and made a list, but I haven't given much thought. Um, but come to think of it, you're probably right that she does have a quality about her. She is beautiful, but not in a, a manufactured sort of... Uh, Farrah Fawcett kind of ways, very much no. natural, girl next door kind of girl. And no, you're right, very capable when it comes to the crunch. She she sort of pulls it out of the bag. Yeah, it's a, it's a shame she didn't come back and be be the sort of Laurie Strode of the series to a degree. But um, yeah, it's very good. Yeah, it is a shame because as the story goes, she was in fact offered a chance to be in the next film, in, in part three and... At the time, her agent kind of talked her out of it and she turned it down. And now, all these years later, she she regrets doing it. Because I think she, of anybody in this series, has, I think, had the, the, I don't know, I don't know how you would describe it, really. But I think she just has a very strong, likeable quality to her that I think that you find in Laurie Strode as well. Uh, It's a very good comparison, I think. Uh, she's definitely one of my favourites. She's smart and, you know, but but at the same time, you don't get the feeling that she's so smart that she's that she still can't convey that sense of absolute terror, which she does very, very well at the end of this movie. And, I mean, you know, when she finally meets Jason later on, and they don't go out for a drink with each other or anything. I don't mean it in that way. When she meets Jason, it's probably one of the longest sort of stalking sequences in the in in the movie and it's a it really is a battle to the death and yeah i just there's something about her i've always liked i think she she stands out as as a uh you know i'm not saying she's oscar caliber actor but i i think there's there's something there there's something that i always gravitate to when i watch this that i don't find in in really in most of the other characters maybe um the girl in in part seven i whose name i can't remember now to be honest with you but um but yeah it, it it's yeah, it, it really is. I think I think Ginny's my favourite. We should obviously talk about Jason because let's start with how is he here at all? I mean, one of Tom Savini's reasons for not doing the movie was, what, you're putting Jason in it? How's Jason in it? What's he been doing, you know, sitting in the forest eating crayfish for years? And how is he here? Because the only explanation is he didn't actually drown he crawled out and started living in the cabin in the woods as a child. Would he really survive? Uh, You know, a very mothered child from the sounds of it as well. The only other explanation is he's supernatural from the get-go. And he did drown, but he came back to life early on. Or his mother dying sort of triggered some sort of supernatural rebirth. I don't know. I mean, what do you think? Or do we need to really think about it that much? Well, see, I, I'm not sure that even the filmmakers know, to be honest mm. with you, because there, there's there's sort of mixed signals all over the place. I mean, evidently what, what we can see is that they must have meant for us to think that, yes, he has been living in, in the woods there in the forest because he's got his own shack. 
and he's yeah. got a to- toilet in there. It's not, the living conditions aren't great, are they? We have to we have to be honest. Um, and so so you you must presume that he's been living off things in the forest and animals, things like that. But there are things that he does in this movie that he. He, he, you couldn't imagine Jason doing later on. I mean, very early in the movie, this part of the movie where Alice is killed is set two months after the original movie, the events of mm. that. And Alice has her own place now. And, you know, of course, as you can imagine, it's such a traumatic experience. She can't quite get over it. And she's having nightmares and everything. As it turns out, Jason has stalked her, found where she lives and has stalked her, found her house, has broken in and, you know, and... It's basically killing her as revenge for for her uh, chopping his mother's head off, which nobody nobody would like, would they? That would uh, put you in a bit of a ba- bit of a bad mood. But the it, it, for, I mean, for starters, he 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 rings her up and and sort of <laughs> he crank calls her. Can you imagine Jason <laughs> picking up a phone and ringing somebody? It it you know it's it's a it's a strange thing. It, I think at this point they I don't think the super the idea of him being supernatural was even at play. That that's my feeling is that they thought, look, let's just get away with thinking that that this guy is is just a man who happened to survive and is living in the woods. But I think, like I say, even the filmmakers are not in, entirely sure. It it makes me laugh to be honest. Some of the criticism raised at the remake, and I'm not gonna we'll touch on it briefly. I'm not gonna defend the remake, but there is criticism. A lot of it. Well, Jason wouldn't do that. Jason wouldn't do that, and. In this film, he does a lot that later Jason wouldn't do. So yeah. I don't think some of those criticisms are particularly valid myself. But, you know, each to their own. I'm not criticising anyone for having those views. But you're right. I mean, this Jason, you know, part seven Jason, I would be dead within minutes. You know, mm. this Jason, I think I could have a go. You know, I'm a big guy. I think toe-to-toe. I would have a chance. Yeah, but you look like the bloody Punisher, mate. I mean, you can take anyone out. Like if I, if I had to deal with this guy, I mean, like, I'd still be dead in minutes. Like <laughs> I already know I would be. But no, you're right. He he's much more of a man, isn't he? And I think you you sort you look at this and you think, yeah, this this is doable. I mean, he has some scraps in there. You know what I mean? And they are very scrappy scraps. It's not like. Uh, Jason walking in and just grabbing someone and lifting them up and crushing their skull and anything like that. These are proper on the floor, scrabbling around, you know. Um, so, but again, this is part of the overall tapestry that I find interesting: the evolution of him, where they don't really know what he's going to be, and they just, as it goes along, they say, "Well, that works, yeah. so we'll keep that," and that doesn't work, so we'll drop that. And I think that ultimately. I think it takes quite a few films in the franchise before they really refine him to where to where they mm. get him to the place where I'm I consider him to be the Jason that I know and love. Um, we'll talk about that as we go on. But let's talk about what's more frightening here. And of course, in this film, he wears a sack over his head. The hockey mask doesn't come until later. That to me is a, is another happy accident. The hockey mask and how that became so iconic. But here he's wearing the sack. It is very much uh, reminiscent of the town that dreaded sundown the killer in that movie um but what what do you think works better well jason's got to have the hockey mask but i'm probably going to fall back on the same comment i just made last time it's it's an interesting part of the whole thing the sack era so much that so that they brought it back for the remake you know um so again 
I wouldn't want him wearing a sack every film, but I like that he does in this film. And there film. is something spooky about it, isn't there? It, it, it's not as if, mm-hmm. you know, all of a sudden it makes him less scary because he's wearing a, a sack over his head. There still is something frightening about, you know, a sack with one eye hole cut out. So you can only see through, you know, out through one eye. Um, it, it's... I, I, I like the look of it. A lot of people, they, they call this the redneck Jason because he's, you know, he's yeah. wearing very rednecky garb and he's living out there in the forest and everything. And um, it, it just is remarkable to me, really. If you sit and look at this and then think about some of the films that would follow, just how different he is here compared to how he would be in part six or part seven when you've got Kane Hodder in play. It's, it's a completely different ball game, isn't it? You know, it, it is one of the areas of interest, uh, how he develops. I mean, just out of curiosity, and we are getting ahead of ourselves, but what the hell? Where does Jason arrive for you where you can say, that's Jason? Part six. See, I would have said part four. I quite like Ted White. He's quite a vicious Jason. I, I like part four very much. Uh, and yeah, like you say, vicious and quite fast and energetic. Mm. The thing for me is that when I was growing up, the Jason that I knew was what what people people called zombie Jason, which is the the Jason yeah, who yeah. is basically um, we'd get into the whole history of it. But basically, is uh, reactivated <laughs> with lightning, and is now, for all intents and purposes, an undead creature, and is now mm. just an unstoppable, slow-moving killing machine. And so that's what I've always associated you know with my jason is the the this character who no longer runs after people which i think running after people is is frightening don't get me wrong i think there's something to be said for the remake which we'll we'll mention a bit later on for for having a character who runs after you at a blistering pace you know there is something frightening about that i think there's something even more frightening about this incredibly physically intimidating imposing thing coming after you that you can shoot it with bullets you can stab it you can burn it it will not stop coming. Mm-hmm. And I think, I feel like up until part six, he's a man. And mm-hmm. from part six onwards, he's now a creature and a, a, a force of genuine evil. But that's where, it, you know, my Jason kind of begins. But no, without a doubt, part four is, I would say, if, I personally would say, of, of these early films, everything before part six, I think part four is probably the best one. There's probably not much more to say about part two. We both like it. We're both interested by it and, and its place in the overall picture. Um, but why don't we finish this one off and just have that little bit of talk about where things went from here. We spoke about it before because the MPAA cut this movie to shreds. Uh, more so later on when you get to part five, I know in particular, was was quite was well gutted. And of course, part seven. Uh, I'll give you some trivia about this one and then we'll, we'll move on to discuss the remaining films. Uh, this film was made on a budget of just over $1 million, ended up making over $21 million at the box office. So not as big a success as the uh, the last one, but still an, an enormous success nonetheless. Uh, this began a trend of being able to make the films relatively cheaply and seeing a big box office return for each one. The original plan for Friday the 13th Part 2 was to have a new film debut each year that would cover a completely different story, much like an anthology, and similar to the original plan for the Halloween series, of course, with Halloween Part 3. Um, however, it was eventually decided that a better idea would be to revisit the story of Jason and continue with that character. He'd go on to be the key star of all the films from this point onward. Uh, Adrian King, who played Alice in the first film, didn't want to have much of a role in this one, 
as uh, she'd unfortunately dealt with an obsessed fan stalking her in real life, something that you know, quite rightly scared her away from further film work in the future. Um, in recent years, however, she's not only embraced the love of the Friday films at conventions and in documentaries, she's also returned to acting, starring in several productions since 2010. Steve Miner, of course, directed this movie and the next one. Uh, he was an associate producer on the first Friday. Sean S. Cunningham would continue on as a producer throughout the entirety of the franchise, but would not direct another entry in it. Uh, Miner would continue to have a directorial career after his time with the Friday films, going on to direct House in uh, 1986 with William Catt and Halloween H2O in 1998. And he also did Lake Placid and the truly abominable uh, remake of Day of the Dead in 2008 which is just awful isn't it mm. terrible absolutely terrible. awful uh friday the 13th part two as with the first film is available on blu-ray and dvd globally you can get it as the standalone release in the uk you probably can in america as well and of course as part of the the complete collection blu-ray box set uh, which i should stress is region free so if you do want to buy it uh, and you happen to live in the uk you can buy it and you can watch them on your ps4 ps3 whatever whatever blu-ray player you've got um Maybe it's a worthy investment. I wish I could bloody afford it, because I would have picked it up by now anyway. But uh, yeah, so that's Friday the 13th Part 2. Now we can come to talking about the rest of the films in the series. Obviously, we can't review them. It would take up too much time. So so where do we go from here, Tom? I sometimes think the perfect Friday the 13th movie hasn't been made. I think we form an amalgamation of them in mm-hmm. our minds and come up with a, a kind of idealized vision of what the series is but when you watch them you know they each have their flaws and they each have their strengths kind of thing i think i mean let's let's just talk maybe a bit about our favorites i'll just summarize part four uh i think great jason great probably the best human jason in his viciousness um great story introduces the character of tommy who would play a part throughout and I hope gets a sort of rebirth in the the modern Friday the 13th series because I would like Jason to have a nemesis. Uh, Part 6 is fun, a bit more of a comedy slant but they never take the piss out of Jason so that's that's probably the best beer Friday the 13th, you know, you're going to throw one on and just drink some beers, it's going to be that one. Part 7, the debut of Kane Hodder who, you know, his influence on the character is, you know, can't be undersold. I interviewed him once. He's uh, He was a great interview, mm-hmm. lovely fella. Um, and, I mean, they're my highlights for the series personally. So what are yours? And then we'll talk about a bit of the, the further stuff. Yeah, I'm going to be repeating some of what you said. I mean, I think certainly... As far as favorites favorites go, I think the first first four are very solid. I think the fourth one is easily the best of the of you know of of that uh, selection there. And I do think that yeah, Jason in the fourth one is is the best human Jason. I think for me, like I said, the the sort of iconic Jason, the look of him and everything begins with part six for me. The the, the thing about part six is not only is it incredibly fun, it is taking the piss out of the slasher genre. I think it does it in quite a smart way. I think it's it's a quite a well acted movie as well. It, it it's it's well made, and it's well put together, and it mm. does begin the idea of Jason now being an unstoppable force. He's not just a man anymore. He's rotten and slimy and nasty, and there are bits falling off him. He's you know that's why people have nicknamed him Zombie Jason at this point. 
uh, so yeah, part six is a, is a massive favourite. Part seven, it's interesting. Somebody on Twitter, somebody I like, but I can't remember who it was now. They said that that they thought part seven was the worst one in the series. I think where it suffers is that you can tell it's been gutted by the MPAA. Indeed, if if you go on YouTube, yeah. there is actually a um, a clip there where it's got Kane Hodder and the director of the movie. Who I can't remember the name of. I'm sorry. Uh, is it is that one uh, Carl Buchler? Did yes, it is. Part seven? Yeah, yeah. Uh, or is it John Carl Buchler? Is it John? Uh, I don't know. Definitely, definitely a Buchler in there somewhere. Um, <laughs> but he and Kane Hodder are sort of commentating over this footage that was, and it's you know it's quite grainy, quite old footage. The the footage that was cut out of it, and there's some great stuff in there. I mean, there's one scene in particular where Jason takes a guy and he squeezes his head down to like the size of a walnut. And it's it's a brilliant <laughs> scene. I think if that was in there, I think part seven would be would be much better regarded because it's really the first time in the series that Jason J- Jason comes up against somebody that he cannot beat, and because the, the girl right. he's fighting in there has, has psychic powers, and and also we get the debut of Kane Hodder, and like you say, it would be very easy for somebody to just put the mask on. And that would be it, and just sort of run around and fling your machete at people. What Kane Hodder did with this character, I think, is is you, you can't talk, you can't speak, and you've got no dialogue. What he did is he sort of infused Jason with with these sort of physical um, ticks, and and there's one scene in the movie where where Jason his mask has been has been torn off, and he he looks so pissed off. And angry because he yeah. he cannot get this girl at all. He cannot beat her. And um, so, and I think Kane Hodder, you can you know, yeah, you you cannot forget about the guy. And I feel it's a shame. I feel like he is the ultimate actor when it came to this particular character. I feel like he imbued him with such a sense of of, of intimidation. Now, a lot of people, I say a lot of people, but there are a few people who don't like Kane Hodder because they feel that he was too big. Uh, because you're looking at Jason, surely if he was in, you know, if he was in a grave, w- wouldn't his body size reduce as opposed to, you know, instead he kind of balloons up into this big hulking football player looking guy, you know. For me, I don't really think about it. I just, uh, to me, Kane Hodder is that unstoppable killing machine. Unfortunately, he only really did, you know, a couple of movies in in the franchise. Anyway, sorry, I'm I'm rambling on. The last film that that I have to mention is being a little bit of a favourite. I've got a soft spot for Jason X. It's not great, but I do think it's fun. I think it's a fun flick. It's it's got that popcorn sort of quality to it. Uh, but yeah, there, there are there are problems with it. But I do like the fact that at the beginning of the movie they've got Jason chained up because they can't kill him. You know, they've. Been, I mean, and he's been that way for years. They they can't figure out how to get rid of Jason. So all they can do is chain him up and keep him restrained, and you know, fling stuff at him until he eventually goes, which seems like it will never happen. And um, and there's a couple of kills in there that I really like, particularly the uh, when Jason comes alive in the uh, I don't know the spaceship or whatever it is, and then uh, I mean, you know, once you put a horror icon in space, I know, I know, it tends to go to shit. But I, I and he he dips the woman's head in that. Um, in the, what do you what do you call it the uh, and he smashes her face on the counter and it, you know I, so there are bits and pieces I like in there now were you going to say something about that one Tom yeah I think this is where me and you are going to differ I'm not really a fan of Jason X to be honest I think there's there's things in there that, that I like 
and if they'd have ran with some of those ideas, I probably would have liked the whole thing a lot better. You know, the fact that the government has got onto the fact that Jason exists and has had to respond to it and do something about it. And we see a bit of that in um, Jason Goes to Hell, which I'd like to speak about briefly mm-hmm. after this. Um, but So I, I like that. They've had to take him somewhere. What are we going to do with him? Uh, you know, Cronenberg is like... It's been a while since I watched it, but doesn't he want to sort of learn from him, probably to weaponize him in yes. some way? I can't remember. Um, but, and crazy as this might seem, considering... <laughs> All we've been through with the franchise up to this point with this unstoppable zombie killing machine. It's just a step too far. The whole space thing and Uber Jason, I'm just not into it. I, you know, go back to the first movie, those simple, humble beginnings, and this is where it ends up. Mm, not really for me. Yeah, I see what you mean. I mean, the thing is, at this point, the, the franchise is, is getting into ridiculous places, isn't it? But that's what seems to happen yeah. with horror franchises. You know, at some point, you know that they're being made purely for the money, not necessarily for passion. I think there's a little bit of that going on. I don't know. I just find it quite fun to watch, really. No, I, I can see where you're coming from. Absolutely. Because it, it does have that sort of... It, it's It's got its tongue in its cheek it, to a degree as well. It, it is fun. But I find... I actually prefer Jason Goes to Hell, and that is as a oh dear, uh, an interesting failure. And what I mean by that is sometimes I think where they've tried to do something, and even though it fails, what they've tried to do interests me. And they don't really make good on this, but okay, well, let's look at Crystal Lake. What's it like to live in Crystal Lake when... You know, there's all these murders going on every few summers. Um, other places you don't go. The locals know you don't go there. And as long as they stick to those boundaries, they're going to be okay. You know, all these kinds of things are, are quite interesting. Now, they don't really capitalize on it because they go with this ridiculous body-swapping plot that takes Jason out of the movie. And when he is in the movie, he looks a bit bizarre. But... um I don't know. I always had a, a soft spot in the way that I, I found it quite interesting. And then we get the Freddy glove at the end. Yeah, it plays with some interesting ideas. I think the problem is that you, you almost wonder. I, I I get the impression they might really have been trying to kid it off. I mean, of course, it's called Just Goes to Hell the Final Friday. I, I get the feeling that, that mm. I very much get that vibe throughout it. It's like, well, what what does everyone associate with Friday the 13th? Jason Voorhees. Well, let's take him out of the movie for most of it. Uh, like you say, strange look to him. I mean, he's he's very bloated. He's like a big meatball. Uh, one thing I do find quite interesting, though, about about the look of Jason in this is that he's been wearing the mask for so long that it's melded into his skin <laughs> on his face. Yeah. So I do find that quite fascinating. There is one, there's one kill in this movie, which you can only see in the uncut version, which we should point out is not available in the Blu-ray box set. The Jason mm-hmm. Goes to Hell is, is the r-rated theatrical version in that so if you want that if you want to see it uncut you're gonna have to get it on dvd folks uh but there is one kill in a tent in this movie which i think is one of the best in the entire series it's only a shame that it's not it's performed by jason inhabiting somebody else's body so there's something that doesn't feel sort of genuine about that but it that's the the thing for me is it doesn't feel genuine but i like the the character of um his name i can't remember now the guy you know the, the the guy who's hunting him down uh, Clayton Duke. Yes, 
Yeah, I, I, I quite like that character. Well, that that's the thing, another good idea. If you'd have kept Jason in the movie and had a bounty hunter in, you know, someone who could try and go toe-to-toe with him and be an actual threat to him, you could have done that. You didn't need the whole body-swapping angle. So, you know, again, interesting idea, poorly executed. Yeah, because, I mean, when Duke actually finds him, he fights with him for about two minutes, and then that's the end of him, you know. So <laughs> not much actually happens with that, which is a shame. Uh, I mean, look, we've talked about almost every film. We might as well just quickly touch upon the rest and get it over with. Part five, we've both sort of deliberately passed over it. I think because it's the one film in the series that a lot of people feel is is out of place because what's happened is in part four Jason is killed off it was called the final chapter presumably that's supposed to be the end of it Paramount wanted it to be the end unfortunately uh, the movie made a ton of money I think it made I don't know if it made almost as much money as the original but I think it made the most money of, of all the sequels up to that point and so they were like okay why don't we try something else so they decided to bring Jason back but have it be so you've got the character of Tommy Jarvis who was played in the previous film by Corey Feldman, different actor here. Um, and the idea is that... But we talked about the Laurie Strode of this and maybe Amy Steele being it. In many ways, the character of Tommy Jarvis is that character, is the Laurie Strode. Yeah. Unfortunately, was you know was started in part four, played by a young Corey Feldman, continued in this, and then um, you know continuing in part six as well. And I think the problem that I have with this is, is first of all, this... The Jason in this movie is not the real Jason; it's an imposter. And I, I've always—it's always made me laugh that the killer in this movie is telegraphed so early on that it's almost <laughs> hilarious. Because there's one point where you know, this guy goes psycho and ends up murdering this bloke with an axe. Um, I can't—I'm trying to remember. So, what sort of place is it? There, there are all these these um. They're not kids. All these young people hanging out at this place. Why are they at, at this place, Tom? What is it? Is it a place for psychiatric patients? I'm trying to... Yeah, sort of like behavioural issues, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, and Tommy Jarvis is there. And so this this kid gets killed. And there's there's a paramedic there who pretty much... I mean, look, I can describe it to you like this. At one point, they're like, oh, I wonder who's committing all these murders. And the paramedic turns around and pretty much says, oh, sorry, were you talking to me? <laughs> and it's like, oh, do, 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 I think I know who it is. And I think that's one of the key issues is a lot of people feel that this isn't a real Friday the 13th movie because it, it turns out the killer is, is this paramedic and it's an imposter. It's not the real Jason. It's sort of, it's going to be down the bottom of my Friday the 13th list. But again, it, it's an interesting failure. Definitely. Part eight, we can just quickly say that this is where I, I feel like it's really getting ridiculous because this is at the point where we find out that Jason can teleport. Yeah. And I I, men I mentioned it on an I can't remember what episode it was on an older episode where I was talking about you know sort of strange things that can happen that don't really make any sense and one of them in this is that for for example there's a classic scene of uh, Jason is stalking people on a boat and one guy he, he's at the bottom of this big sort of pole this big red metal pole and Jason is there at the bottom the guy climbs up the pole and Jason is at the top of the pole how. How did this happen? We don't know. And the filmmakers, the way they explained it was that Jason can teleport. And then, of course, people were, like, were asking them, well, 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 since when can he do that? And they were saying, well, he just discovered he could do it when we made this movie. So it, And, of course, the movie is called J you know, Jason Takes Manhattan. 
it, it, most of the movie is set on a boat, <laughs> so it's there's really, right. really not much Manhattan in the movie. But it does have a classic scene where he, uh, Jason uh, punches a guy's head off. So I have to give it credit for that. And you know, like we talked about Jason X. Uh, why don't we talk about Freddy versus Jason, Tom? I'm a fan. Yeah. I enjoyed it. On the one hand, it is sad that Kane never got his chance because he'd been championing this for years. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to fight Freddy. I want to fight Freddy. So it is sad that he didn't get his chance. But I do kind of like what Ronnie U did with uh, Ken Kertinger as this sort of slightly modified Jason. Um, I did like it, and I liked the film overall. It was a good... It was a good send off, I think, for both of those uh, characters. I, I, I am kind of sad that they never went with it and went with a sequel. I mean, some people thought the Freddy versus Jason versus Ash was a bit too much, a bit a step too far, and I'll be interested to see where you sit on that. But I thought it would have been good. It would have been a nice way to close that era of horror, you know. But I don't know. What do you think? Well, I mean, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, this is. This is at a time when you could probably get away with that, you know. I think. Mm. I mean, I think it's such a fun popcorn movie. I have to disagree in as far as um, Ken Kersinger. I, I actually, I find him a bit milk toast, really, in in the role. I don't think he brings much to it. I think Kane Hodder would, would have added something to it that that I th- I just think he's a bit bland. I don't feel there's much passion from him. But I think what Ronnie Yu has very cleverly done is just made a very fun popcorn movie that's it's it's explosive and it's it's um there's a lot of energy to it never really slows down it's never boring and ultimately i mean look i'm a big fan of a nightmare on elm street the the franchise as as uh well almost as a whole there are films that i really love in there there are films i don't like uh, I, i'm always when i watch this film, i'm rooting for jason yeah i'm yeah. always rooting for jason and yeah uh, the girlfriend and i have a little bit of a disagreement on that I think Jason wins. I don't know about you, but... I've always thought Jason won. Yeah, because I know you can argue, well, look, he's in the dream world at the end because he's cut off Freddy's head and Freddy's winking. But no, Jason takes him down. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, would you have seen wanted to see them go one more round with Ash? Yeah, well, I've completely forgot to comment about that. Uh, I, think, I think it would have worked quite well, actually. You know, I mean, mm. you can get away with Army of Darkness, which is my least favourite of the Evil Dead movies, to be honest with you. I think if you can get away with the Army uh, with Army of Darkness, I think you could have got away with putting Ash in there. And also, it would have it would have meant that you you wouldn't have had to rely on a on a set of young actors who, to be fair, are quite capable. I, I would say that the acting in Freddy vs. Jason is much more capable than it is in, you know, the 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 very early films in the series. But I think if you had just that central character of Ash, because Ash would basically be us, wouldn't he? You know. And we'd yeah. be rooting for Ash. I think that would have worked very well. It just, to me though, it just seems like one of those ideas that everybody wanted, but it, it just was never going to happen, unfortunately. Okay, we're running long, but we've got we've got to talk about the remake. So you know, a few brief thoughts on the remake. Go. What are your thoughts? I don't like it. I have to say, uh, you were mentioning earlier on that that people have issues with the things that jason does to be honest most of my issues are sort of outside of of jason i Mm. i personally think that derek mears made made for a fantastic jason if you look at the documentary crystal lake memories which we'll we'll talk about in a moment i think you can tell that derek mears was a fan of the series and really really wanted to play the character i think he gives the character just a little bit of an edge 
I think it's not, it, it, you can tell that it wasn't just a job for him. So in that respect, I don't have a huge problem with Jason in there, really. My problem with it is I just think the rest of it is, I think it was made to a formula. I think it's it's very shiny. I think there's a bit of a Hollywood sheen to it. I think it's not very well written. Um, you can argue that a lot of the films in the in the franchise are not very well written. There, there are characters in there that I don't particularly like, which is most of them, in fact. It just is, and I, you know, I didn't really root for anybody. It just is. It. I mean, I, I would say it's definitely one of the worst films in the series to me. But then you could argue that this is its own series entirely. They're recently talking about making another one, uh, and sort of having it be kind of a reboot. So maybe they might reboot the whole movie again instead of making a part two. Uh, no, not 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 one I'm particularly keen on. I'm more or less on the same page. I'm not really a fan of it. I think if I do take anything away from it, it is Derek Mears as Jason. I I like what he did with it. He, I've heard people criticise the the bag over the fire scene as something Jason wouldn't do. I love that. You know, maybe old Jason wouldn't do it, but this is new Jason. Uh, he's a bit different. He's not a million miles away. Uh, other people say, well, Jason wouldn't take a prisoner. Well, he's taken this prisoner because she reminds him of his mother. So, you know, there's a logic there to it, um, which I'm fine with, you know. Um, people have mentioned about, oh, is he, a, is he a pot farmer or something? Well, no, that's just happens to be on his land i don't think he even knows what it is you know that sort of thing so a lot of these criticisms i just don't get with but you're right it's the things outside jason that don't work it just doesn't gel together very well and and i find myself you know every once in a while thinking oh maybe i'll warm to it now you know maybe i will sort of accept its flaws and just go with it but then i put it on and just find myself completely underwhelmed by it yeah, and I also think the kills in it are quite tame, considering what we can get away with in horror movies these days and what the MPA yeah. will let through. I think that the creativity is severely lacking. Um, yeah, just not doesn't really come together for me. I do think it's interesting that in this one they sort of deliberately they set out to make it so that Jason is more a defender of his territory rather than being somebody who's actively going out looking for people to kill. Yeah, I mean, which is, again, it's something I, I quite liked, you know, that they could have done more of in Jason Goes to Hell. You know, the, there's there's a woman in the remake who seems to have an idea that, no, well, no, you don't go there, you know. You don't go there because that's that's where he is. And what yeah. what would the locals do with the, with this guy who lives nearby and, and would they set up certain things and I find that quite interesting. Again the the remake doesn't probably run with it as much either, but yeah, he, he defends his territory and I'm okay with that. Yeah, me too. It but it's it still is is not a uh, to be honest with you, I mean I've seen the film what, two or three times, try to give it a go. It just is not for me. It's it's you know, the one I don't own, I'm afraid. When it first came out on D V D they were planning on bringing out a different cut and one of the producers, I forget his name, said, this is going to be like a totally different movie. Now, there is the killer cut out there, which isn't that different. Um, but there was scenes filmed with an actor playing a young Jason. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, scenes... I'm not sure whether this is actually in the final cut of him watching his mother be killed. It is. Uh, is yeah. it? But I think there was there's more of the young Jason, and they said it was going to be like a completely different movie. 
it could only have been a better movie as far as I'm concerned. Mm. So um, it's a shame that they never brought it out. It is. But, you know, hey, look, it, it exists. What can we do? At the end of the day, Tom, I mean, I've, I've come to terms with the fact that most of the films we love are going to be remade at some point. So it was only inevitable that they were going to, you know, after uh, Jason X especially, I think, uh, you know, even though I like the movie, I, I think you can say they probably creatively were out of ideas at that point. I suppose it made sense to reboot it. And it looks like they're going to reboot it again soon. So Friday the 13th will live on. Yeah, well, let's hope it's better. But... um Quick nod to Crystal Lake Memories, I guess, because we are running really long. Um, you know, it's the documentary that I always hoped would get made, and uh, it's it's great. Yeah, it's based on the book, Crystal Lake Memories, which I have a first print copy of, because I bought it when it first came out, the very first mm. edition of it, and it cost me about 60 quid, I think. <laughs> it's quite an expensive book, but that's how much I... Worth it. Yeah, oh, absolutely. It's f- And it's a fantastic coffee table book. Um, even though I don't own a coffee table, so uh, it's a bit redundant, isn't it, that statement? But the documentary, you made me aware that it was being made, actually, Tom. I didn't know that it was. Uh, and I sat and watched the whole thing. It took me two nights to get through it. It, it is exhaustive. I think it's about mm. five hours long, isn't it, Tom? It's a long thing. But if you want to know... Look, everything we said on here, we've given you bits and pieces of information if you want to know everything you probably need to know about this about this franchise as a whole, get this documentary. You can get it on Blu-ray. I know my copy came with a, an extra disc of interviews. I don't know if they do that anymore. Uh, I think that was a limited edition thing. Yeah, I got that too. It's if you ordered it directly from the site uh, in the beginning, but they might be gone now. Yeah, but I mean, look, even if you don't get it, I mean, all that is is basically it's... Some of the interviews that were cut, obviously, and put into the the main documentary, they've got longer versions of them on there. So it's not a massive loss if you don't have that. Get Crystal Lake Memories, and if you can find the book as well, you know, get both of them. And if you've got the documentary and that book, you'll you'll know everything you could ever want to know about the Friday the Thirteenth franchise. It's a it's an essential purchase. Considering we thought we'd struggle, I think we've uh, put our two cents worth in on Friday the 13th. So, you know, it's there. We said we'd never do it, and we sort of done it. But <laughs> yeah. it It's on the list, so what what can we say? It, it's there. Well, we're not covering it again, so that's it, isn't it? So you've had, you've had your fill of Friday the 13th now. So let's hear from some friends of the show. Um, Chris, do you want to tackle this first one from our friend Chris Ward? Yeah, I'd love to. Yes, so Chris Ward, of course, Horace Smith over there on Twitter. He says, Chris Ward, a.k.a. Horace Smith here. I'll begin with a confession. I haven't listened to your Foxy Brown show yet. Oh, Chris, you're slacking. Uh, Not through any sort of disinterest, but I've been off work ill for a few days and haven't listened to anything, but it is queued up on my iPod for when I go back to work. Anyway, I already know your thoughts on that film as they're pretty much the same as mine and any other red-blooded male with a Pam Greer fixation. But I thought I'd drop you a line to throw a comment or two on your next show, covering two of the higher quality movies on the Section 3 list, Friday the 13th Parts 1 and 2. I, like you and probably most of your listeners, grew up on the Friday films, although I did see them out of order. I saw Part 3 on VHS first and vaguely followed what was going on, although the Mrs Voorhees corpse coming out of the lake near the end was a little confusing. But I didn't really think much of it. I was only about 10, and the much more colourful Freddy was still my slasher of choice. However, my aunt was a fairly early adopter of Sky TV, and I used to cycle over a stack of VHS tapes every week with a list of films I wanted recorded, one of them being Friday the 13th. 
When I watched it, it was on a Friday night and everybody else had gone out, leaving me alone in the house to masturbate. No, oh, <laughs> leaving me alone in the house, watching it in the dark. And I absolutely loved it. All the way through, I thought the killer was Jason. And then, spoiler, it's too late for that, Chris. Uh, when it wasn't, I thought that was great. And then there was that final scare. A wonderful film and still my favourite of the series, along with the pure, undiluted Jasonness of part four, possibly due to nostalgia and the circumstance of watching it for the first time, but I think it holds up well as a tense and well-paced thriller. Maybe not quite as perfectly crafted as Halloween, but just as effective. Mm. However, for some reason, I've never held part two in the same regard. Possibly because pre-Jason Goes to Hell, it was the last one I saw, as it was the one film in the series my local video shop didn't have in stock, so I had to wait for it. And I don't think it's a bad film at all, but I've never really gelled with it as much as some of the others. I do like Amy Steele as the final girl. The kills are good, despite being derivative of Barber's Bay of Blood, where we mentioned that. And uh, there is some neat camera work going on. I love the shot of Amy Steele hiding in the shack with a silhouette of a demented Jason running towards it through the woods. But I never really liked Jason as a sack-wearing hillbilly. And what's up with that ending? I still don't really get it. However, their inclusion on the Section 3 list is more to do with knee-jerk reactions to horror films, and specifically the Friday the 13th films, although that was nothing like the grudge that the MPAA had against them later on. I'm sure I don't need to recommend the Crystal Lake Memories book and documentary, as you'll both no doubt do that very thing, but I would urge your listeners to seek them out. The documentary is cheaper, although I got the book for a bargain 15 quid on eBay a few years back. Ha! Ha indeed. Anyway, keep up the good work, blah, 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 and all that sort of stuff. Apologies, it's not an MP3 this time, but I've been unwell and don't want to vomit on my microphone. I may need it in the very near future. Regards, Chris Ward. Great stuff, Chris. Thanks for that, mate, and uh, hope you're feeling better. Yes, I hope you had a chance to listen to the Foxy Brown Show, and I hope you enjoyed it. Now we have an email from uh, a good friend of the show, Seth McKevlin. Tom, do you want to read that one? Yeah, he says, hey guys, it was another great show last time round, rants included. If time permits, I'd love to hear two new podcasts on your network. The Strange and Deadly World of Politics and Chris Clayton's Kung Fu Commentary. Make it happen. That's a good name, isn't it? Chris Clayton's Kung Fu Commentary. It really is, Tom. Imagine if I made a solo podcast where I talked about Kung Fu movies. That would be a novel idea, wouldn't it? Never happened. I hesitated sending feedback for this show as I'm not a big fan of the Friday the 13th franchise. In the 80s, I was definitely a Nightmare on Elm Street guy. Not that you had to be one or the other, but that seemed to be the case for many back then. I'm really hoping this episode can sell me on the series. I rewatched parts one and two for this, and the first thing I noticed was the music. I really don't like orchestral scores in slashes. It seems too classy, too Alfred Hitchcock for a sleazy slasher. It was well done though, and I know some of those sounds are beloved to many horror fans, but give me John Carpenter and his synths any day. He does like his synths, doesn't he, Seth? Mm. Uh, Part 2 really set the tone for the series though. It had a bigger cast, better kills, better pacing, and I don't know if I just got used to it, but I noticed the orchestral score less. I know Jason's known for his hockey mask, but I really like the hood he wears in this one. It's also an iconic look that's been seen time and time again. It would have been hilarious if he simply found a new mask for each film in the series. I would watch part two, but I don't think I ever need to see part one again. Uh, What is it with Kevin Bacon? That guy just can't catch a break any time he goes camping. Of course, I'm referring to this and White Water Summer from 1987. 
It's a fun film where he takes some at-risk youths camping and they, in turn, almost kill him. I'm really looking forward to your take on Bloodlust on the next show. Good luck with that. Hmm. Interesting. I haven't seen it yet, so we'll see. Yeah, I'm not looking for. I'm not looking forward to it. Uh, Seth, thank you very much. I, you know, I have a look, email chat with Seth now and again, and he's a he's a nice guy. And yeah, he doesn't seem to like uh, slashery sort of stuff, does he, Seth? Or certainly, who done it? Mm. Oh well, each to their own. Each to their own. No, he's wrong. No, you're absolutely you're absolutely right, Tom. And uh, yeah, so thanks for writing in to us, Seth. Yes, absolutely. And we've got another email from Gorblimey. Gorblimey, Governor. Okay. <laughs> okay, and uh, Chris, your turn. Go on. Yes, so email from Gore Blimey. Hey guys, I've been really enjoying the podcast so far. I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say about this episode's double feature. Hope you don't mind me sharing my thoughts about them, and apologies if I end up repeating things you say. Ah, Friday the 13th and Friday the 13th Part 2. A couple of old favourites from when I first started getting into horror in the 80s. I rewatched them this week for the first time in years, and I have to say I thought both stood up pretty well for being over 30 years old. The original gave us so many memorable things. A female psychopath, a great score, killer POV camera angles, loads of future slasher movie tropes, impressive gore effects, Kevin Bacon getting a handjob in the front of a truck, don't remember that. Uh, I mean, what's not to like? Okay? Introducing the mystery killer's character in the last 15 minutes was cheating a bit, but I can live with that. Did he get a hand job in the truck? I don't remember that. But, uh, I don't remember that. The only issue I have is the scene where an actual snake gets chopped in half by a machete. I'm not a fan of real animal killing, nor are we. Uh, in horror films anyway, but I'm not sure the scene is all that important to the story, and the whole light-hearted, giggly tone of it feels really out of place with the rest of the movie. Yeah, we didn't comment on that, did we? But it, it's, um, there is a real animal death in this. Yeah, yeah, that's unfortunate. Unnecessary. Uh, Friday the 13th Part 2 might not have Tom Savini's box of uh, special makeup effects, but it makes up for it with inventive kills, and one of the best final girl chase sequences in any slasher movie. Don't know if I'm alone here, but I find Jason's pillowcase look a lot more effective than the later hockey mask. Yes, I know the mask is massively iconic, but the first time we see him properly in this one coming right at us, I think he looks flipping terrifying. When Jason grabs his various sharp, pointy objects and gets on with business, it all becomes thrilling and fast-moving. And that's how I'd remembered the film overall. So when I rewatched it this week, I was surprised that there's a whole 50 minutes before the main killing spree kicks in. I'd completely forgotten the slower pace of the first half. I think Ginny is great as a final girl, but I never really found her psychology bit at the end uh, all that convincing. I think you're meant to just sit back and experience the film like a roller coaster ride and not alanize it too much. I mean, a small child survives drowning and then wanders off to live wild in the woods for 20 odd years. And this is years before Bale Grylls was on the telly. I have no idea who that is. He's like a survival guy. Is he a manly man? Yeah. No, like you, Tom. <laughs> no, these movies are all about tension, jump scares, strip monopoly, cats getting chucked through windows, boobs, gore, and having fun while screaming into your popcorn. Okay, they might have borrowed a few things from other films like Bay of Blood or The Town That Dreaded Sundown, but to be honest, I still had a great time watching them both, probably just as much as I did when I was a teenager. And that must say something. That's Gore Blimey. You can find him on Twitter at DoubleAgent73, and you can read his blog at www.goreblimeyblog.com. And finally, Tom. Yeah, thanks for that, Gore Blimey. He uh, also interacts with us a lot on Twitter, so uh, always good. Uh, so we've got an email from Victor, and he's a quick one. He says, hello, gentlemen. 
Let me begin by saying thank you to Tom Elliott for not letting the Twilight Zone podcast fade into the ether. You're welcome. You know, it's a, it's a podcast I'm very proud of, so I, w- I wouldn't let it die. Uh, he's back, folks, and this time he's double hard. Let's not let's not get back into that again. <laughs> it truly is miles above other TZ shows. It was also the door which led me to the Strange and Deadly show. This has quickly become my favourite podcast. There's a great sense of camaraderie between the two of you that is lacking in other shows. Each episode thus far has been nothing short of fantastic. Keep up the great work, and Chris, I look forward to hearing Golden Oldies. Your friend in America, Victor. Thank you, Victor. Thanks, Victor. <laughs> Have you noticed, uh, Tom, that 95% of the feedback we get is people saying, oh, Tom, I'm so glad I followed you here. I absolutely love you. I adore your work on the Twilight Zone podcast. You you are really great. Uh, Chris, you're all right, too. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. God damn it. The, the, the perils, the curse of being unloved by the populace. <laughs> no, but thank you, Victor. I really appreciate that. And uh, yes, golden oldies. I'll tell you about that in a minute. So that's it, folks. That's the end of our feedback. And indeed... We've come to the end of a <laughs> incredibly long and rambly episode of the Strange and Deadly show. Probably going to be our longest one so far. Some people might like it, uh, like long podcasts. Personally, sometimes for me, they get a bit much. If podcasts start running too long, I just think, well, I haven't got time to listen to that one, so I don't. I, I think this is a bit of an anomaly, folks, uh, because we co- probably could have went double talking about the whole franchise i know we struggled with the first two but we probably could have spoke all night about the thing as a whole yeah so i think what will probably happen is uh, i sort of view this as being a a bit of a special one yeah a bit of a a special edition if you like of the strange and deadly show and i think for the next one we'll really try and make an effort to try and cut it down and tighten it a bit more and sort of get back to we we like to we really like to be around the 90 minute mark don't we? yeah that i think that's where we should be Yes, indeed. So that is the end of this episode of The Strange and Deadly Show. Now, young Victor there, he may be older than me, but I'm just going to say young. Young Victor there mentioned Golden Oldies. Now he's looking forward to hearing it. Let me just quickly plug that. Uh, Tom, my lovely friend Tom Elliott there on the other side of the... uh, the counter or whatever i don't really know what i'm talking about uh tom elliott there he managed to rescue some of my old shows that i thought were lost forever and they are shows i recorded back in 2008 i think through 2009 uh, quite a long time ago now um, so it's a bit a bit strange for me to listen back to a few bits and pieces of them but these are old shows of mine i think he's got about 10 shows there 11 if you count an abandoned version of one of them and basically he's got them there and we're going to be putting them out as Goreboy radio golden oldies going to put them out starting on the 18th of february uh, under the gentleman's grindhouse records banner if you like under that in that network and they're going to go out fortnightly aren't they tom that's right alternate weeks with my old podcast the gentleman's grindhouse that's right so it's just basically a chance for you to to get a different flavor of me you know if you perhaps have have heard me for the first time on this and you like what you hear for some strange reason you can listen back to some of my old stuff some of it i think is fine some of it i'm not that proud of but look what can you do i haven't listened to most of it because there's hours and hours and hours of audio there so i'm going to let you listen to it uh if you'd like to discuss that uh, to be honest with you more specifically if you'd like to send feedback into the show you can do so feedback at strange and deadly.com you can find us on twitter at twitter.com forward slash strange deadly no and in there of course and uh, how can they find you tom uh, i am grindhouse tom i must 
warn you though i'm not that active on twitter these days but you know i'm still there if anyone wants to chat he mostly comes in makes an incisive comment and then buggers off and uh I think that's probably the wisest way to use Twitter, to be honest with you. Uh, I'm on Twitter, of course, at twitter.com forward slash thegoreboy. You can also find me on instagram.com forward slash thechrisclayton. Now, Tom, of course, we're done with Friday the 13th. We're going back into some obscure work. What is the theme on the next show? Nice and simple. A horror classic, Vampires. But uh, maybe with a bit of a twist this time. I mean, what's the first one called? Bloodlust. Bloodlust. I've never seen it. I don't know a thing about it other than it's a vampire movie. So this is what I like about it. Voyager Discovery. And the other one is a George Romero film, Martin, which is a sort of modern take on the vampire. Well, modern for its time. Um, So, yeah, uh, another different show for us. Yes, and I should say that Bloodlust is quite a difficult film to get hold of. Tom and I had to basically split the money and buy a rather expensive DVD copy of it to just be able to get it. It is available on YouTube if you want to watch it, but it's not. there are no subtitles and not available in English. Mm-hmm. So if you do want to see it and you can't find a copy of it anywhere with subtitles or English you know, audio, you're just going to have to try and work out what's happening. <laughs> Having had a quick skip through it, my feeling is you probably won't be able to. But yes, Bloodlust and Martin, the theme is vampires, and that will be with you in two weeks from the time you listen to this, assuming you listen to this on the day it's released. Okay, well, it's time for us to go. Just a quick mention, uh, Chris mentioned before, we are on the website, gentlemensgrindhouserecords.com. There's a lot of stuff on there at the moment, a lot of different types of podcasts. Some of them are kind of old radio shows, which I have a passion for, and I know... uh, Dark Inc. One does, my other partner in crime. Um, they're not going to be for everybody, but there's a lot of great quality there. And, you know, just because they're old doesn't mean they're not good. Uh, so check them out. You might like them. But if they're your thing, they're there as well. So, uh, yeah, check us out. And uh, I look forward to speaking to you next time. Yes, absolutely. It's always a pleasure, dear boy. So until the next episode, it's been me, Chris Clayton. And me, Tom Elliott. And we'll see you soon. Bye for now. Bye.
Okay, well, I think we, we already um, spoke about how, you know, consistency with the character was really important to you. You know, you you starred in all these different kinds of Jason movies, but you, you wanted to keep Jason consistent. And, and there's a line that really, that's kind of become famous from you now, that's, and it's Jason wouldn't do that. Can can you recall? <laughs> I think someone should put on a T-shirt. But can you recall anything in particular that, um, particularly outlandish, maybe that that you kind of said, no, you know, Jason wouldn't do that. There has been one particular incident that's been talked about quite a bit in the past. It was blown a little bit out of proportion, but it certainly is a case where I said that mm-hmm. was in uh, Jason Takes Manhattan. Um, in the script, there was a scene where uh, Jason is going after the gangbangers. Yeah, yeah. And the girl, the heroine, the female lead, her her dog comes to face Jason, and Jason kicks the dog. I just felt, you know, I'm not a you know super animal rights guy or anything, but I just felt that the character I don't think would purposely kill an animal because if anything he would more identify with an animal I think mm-hmm. my feeling was you know uh, just exactly that I told the director I said I don't think Jason would do that I don't <laughs> think he'd kick a dog yeah. he'd take you know pull rip somebody's head off and shit down their neck but he wouldn't hurt a dog <laughs> <I don't think. laughs> and and you know that and and also you know several cases and I wouldn't say it so dramatically like Jason wouldn't do that, but in cases in some of the movies, there'd be a scene where it was written that Jason runs after somebody. I always felt that by the time I started playing Jason, he was more of a zombie, mm-hmm. so that I never pictured him running. Yeah. I didn't really feel he was a human so much anymore because so much has been done and he won't die. It's kind of a living dead type thing. Yeah. And I don't think he would run. I don't see that to me running looks somewhat desperate. And I always wanted, as ludicrous as it was, I always wanted the feeling that while you're watching the movie and the the victims run, I wanted people to feel, you can fucking run, but you're not going to get away. So what's Mm -hmm. the point? You know, he's still going to get you. And I, I always like to have that that underlying feeling that it doesn't matter what they do, they're not going to get away. Yeah. And I, there's no, there's no rush. I'm going to catch them. And people always say, you know, how do you catch them when they run and you walk? And I said, well, but first of all, it's my woods and I know all the shortcuts. Uh-huh. And they always, you know, the women always fall down <laughs> and, and the men always stop and rest when they think it's safe. So either way, I'm going to catch their ass. I actually met you at the at the premiere in uh, in Leicester Square, and uh, oh okay yeah yeah I, I, I it's okay I don't expect you to remember me you met probably for hundreds of people but um if I saw a picture I would though I I, I do I'm have a picture I'll send, send I'll one send. along if you can in an yeah. email or a text or something yeah and I'll, then I'll, I'll I'll remember then sure 
Yeah, I you you were standing with a, a bunch of guys in the foyer, and and you walked across, and you kind of caught my eye, and I just said, "Kane, is it okay if I get a picture?" And you said, "Sure," and you came over, and my buddy took a picture. So, yeah, I'll I'll send that did over. I, did I joke you, or was I friendly? Well, you, you were friendly. I'm I'm about the same size okay. as you, <laughs> so I'll. Oh, I'll... Jesus Christ! How many people have you killed? <laughs> Not enough, man. But, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah. I, ne- I never got a choke. I I did wonder, do you only choke the smaller guys? Uh, maybe I got I got off. No, no, I choke the big guys too. I I choke everybody. I have just so you know. Uh, I think the well, the smallest person I've ever choked in a picture was two weeks old. <laughs> so that's going to be hard to beat. I choked a ninety-three-year-old man. Oh man! Uh, I choked. I choked a guy that was 6'11". Uh, I choked a priest. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't have any limits as far as choking people. 